Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices that we take for granted are out of date, illogical, or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room, and I'm here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a couple of F-bombs thrown in for good measure. Pilates Elephants is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher who really fucking knows your stuff. Okay, I am here with Natalie Wilson. Natalie, welcome. Thanks, Raf. Good to be here again. Yeah, it's awesome to be here with you again. Uh, and today we are going to talk about pathologizing normal. So um, this came out of, this is actually your suggestion. So um, would you set this up for us? Sure. I listened to a podcast about uh, an opinion piece or a viewpoint on JOSPT, which is... Which is a scientific journal. Yes. And the podcast was about a viewpoint entitled The Elephant in the Room, Too Much Medicine in Musculoskeletal Practice. And... They were mostly talking about the medical and clinical industries, uh, but I, when I was listening to it, I made so many parallels to the Pilates industry and the fitness industry as a whole. And I had mentioned, I'd made some offhand comment the last time we spoke about um, the fact that we do do this, why do we do this? And uh, yeah, really, I think the biggest takeaway I got from this viewpoint was that um, the authors call it medicalizing normality. And I really wanted to talk about that in within the Pilates realm, although yeah. it's ubiquitous, I think, everywhere. Yeah, it's not just Pilates. It's personal no. training. It's physical therapy. It's you know, doctors. It's orthopedic yeah. surgeons. It's, you know, and it's, it's, it's rampant. So, all right, so what do, you, what do we mean by pathologizing or over-medicalizing? Well, I have the paper right here. I'm just going to read to you what the authors say. And I'll just say that the authors are Jeremy Lewis, Chad E. Cook, Tammy Hoffman, and Peter O'Sullivan. And these authors uh, define medicalizing normality as um, when a normal human function or condition is labeled as abnormal uh, creating, which then creates health concerns where none exist, which right. I thought. So we take that's a, exactly we, what we do. Yeah, we take a, a, a like a something that's basically completely normal and uh, what we would call in in science like physiological. In other words, just like it's a normal function of the of the of the of the human organism, and we label it as uh, dysfunctional or pathological or you know problematic, uh, and then we create a whole bunch of treatments to fix this imaginary dysfunction uh, and, uh, you know, and the, the sequelae of that or the consequences of that are, well, number one, just over-utilisation of healthcare. So people go and get chiropractic treatment to put their pelvis back in if it's, you know, quote, out. Um, or, you know, the people spend years, you know, stretching their tight hip flexors, quote, tight hip flexors, in order to correct their quote, dysfunctional anterior pelvic tilt. Um, so they, they just 
unnecessary utilisation of healthcare. And also there are actually real harms that result from this, which are, you know, which we can, we'll talk more about uh, as we get into the conversation, but basically uh, people becoming um, fear avoidant and um, developing negative pain beliefs and uh, which can actually uh, elongate or, you know, um, delay recovery um, and, you know, cause, you know, more distress and more disability and more pain um, over time. So, uh, all right, so we, so you think we do this in Pilates, do you? Really? I do. Maybe not everywhere in Pilates, but I think it's really common. I know that I was thinking back to my original training, and while I was a trainee, I was consuming everything that I could about being a better teacher. And all of it really had a pathoanatomical focus. I I pulled all of my magazines that I was reading at the time. I saved them all. Um, and I pulled all of my manuals and textbooks. And everything is about anatomy and pathology. Everything. My, my entire training diet consisted of learning about pathology and what we what we as Pilates instructors should and could do about it. Can you give it can you give a couple of examples? Sure. So um, well let's just talk about postural analysis. That's one of the things that I was trained to do and I know that Raf you trained to do that as well and then trained others to do I've that. Tra- I've trained hundreds of people to yeah. do postural analysis. Yeah. Right. So just in terms of postural analysis, we learned about the plumb line, and then we learned about how we go about observing what we see as deviations from the normal with our clients, and then what exercises we can do about that. You know, we were, there was a lot of um, terms that were being thrown around, like kyphosis, lordosis, upper cross syndrome, lower cross syndrome. Um, what exercises would be helpful for that? What exercises we should avoid to um, reinforce those bad postures? That's those just one example. Postures. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those, and the muscle imbalances, right? And uh, overly short or tight or weak, you know, hip flexors, abs, glutes, you know, or whatever it might be. Yeah. Another example would be. Um, I remember being in the training program and we were doing some sort of exercise where we lifted the legs and my instructor at the time was telling us to not engage our hip flexors. And she kept correcting us like, oh, no, she would put our hands, her hands on our hip flexors and say, no, you're doing it again. Start all over. You're doing it again. Start all over. And I'm thinking, I don't know how not to do this. <laughs> Is that just because you're thick? or? <laughs> I did think so at the time. It took me a long time to figure out that, oh, this is this isn't quite right. Yeah. So um, I need my hip flexors to do this. Right. And so um, you know, kids following along at home, like just try this try this for size, lie on your back, or even just sit in your chair, put your fingers on your hip flexors in the front of your hip joint there, lift your leg. Now I, I challenge you to relax your hip flexors and lift your leg at the same time. Like and what you'll find is just not physically possible because guess which muscles lift your leg? Your hip flexors. And if you relax your hip flexors, by definition, you don't flex your hip. So, yeah. 
Yeah, right. So, and and you shouldn't use hip flexors according to that teacher at that time, because why? Because if we were using our hip flexors, we weren't using our core muscles to do the exercise, and we were really trying to learn in our own body so that we could teach our clients how to properly engage the core to do these movements um, properly. Huh. So this is, I mean, this is something I've, I've heard. I'd, I'd, I'd like to think I haven't taught this, but I can't guarantee I haven't taught it at some point. Um, but now when I hear it, I just think like it is nonsensical. It is literally nonsensical that, you know, you, you physically cannot use your core to flex your hip. You know, the core, if we, whatever muscles we think of as the core, if we think of it as all of your abdominals, or if we think of it as your diaphragm plus your transversus abdominis plus your multifidus plus your pelvic floor, it's like, or however you define the core, none of those muscles cross the hip. You know, they don't flex the hip. They cannot flex the hip. Um, and like, even if you like want to go super like broad in your definition of the core and go, okay, well, the core includes the psoas, which is the deepest of the hip flexors and attaches to the bottom of the thoracic spine and the top four vertebrae of the lumbar spine. And you say, okay, well, let's, you know, we're saying like, let's flex the hip with the psoas, which is deep muscle, not with the sort of TFL and the rec fem and the, all of those sort of superficial, you know, muscles. It's like, it is not possible to isolate a muscle. Like you cannot flex your hip, you know, volitionally and, you know, turn off your rectus femoris and turn your psoas on. Like it's just humans don't have that capacity, just like you can't voluntarily contract the muscles in your digestive system to, you know, digest your food faster or slower. It's like it's not under volitional control. You know, we just don't have control of that function in the body. So it's just, it's not physically possible, you know, like whichever way you cut it up, it's just like, and so the weird thing is like, it's coming from this sort of very anatomical sort of perspective about pain and dysfunction, which I want to talk about more in a minute, but, but it's like, it's not even correct anatomically. You know, it's like, if you actually just think about the anatomy, it doesn't make fucking sense. (laughs) Well, that's the thing, right? Uh, I never thought about it. This is my teacher and I trusted my teacher uh, that she was giving me the right information. So it and, and she didn't probably occur just to me. got it from her teacher and she trusted right. her teacher, right? Right. But the thing is like all down through this long line of people that trusted the person that taught them, like none of us ever really thought like, hold on, you know, it doesn't make, you know, <laughs> look at where the abs started. Look at this, like they don't touch the hip. How could they, how could I flex my hip with my transversus abdominis? Like that doesn't make sense, you know. <laughs> No. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, it's weird. So yeah. All right. So and, and then we, you know, and then so then we, you know, we have this kind of list of things that can be that that are part of normal human variation, um, or just part of normal function that everybody does, like recruiting your rectus femoris and TFL when you flex your hip. Um, you know, that's not variation. That's just like if you're human and you've got a hip and an intact nervous system, you know, that happens. Um, uh, but then there's these other things that is like normal variation, like anterior pelvic tilt. You know, some people have it more, some people have it less, some people don't have it. Uh, and, you know, we label it as dysfunctional or, or pathological. We try and fix it. Um, or, you know, these postural, you know, quote, vari- uh, well, I guess variations is correct. 
but postural is like deviations, you know, from the quote ideal, you know, not quite normal posture, like, you know, excessive kyphosis or rounded shoulders or forwards head or hyperextended knees or, you know, whatever it might be. And then there's just like a whole, I mean, I've got a whole long list that we could spend, you know, multiple shows talking about, but things like core activation, you know, it's like if your core's not activating properly, that's dysfunctional. Um, uh, uh, scoliosis, there's a whole conversation to be had there where there's actually a whole bunch of research failing to show an association between scoliosis and increased intensity of back pain. It's like, so well, is it actually a pathology or is it just very, you know, one end of the spectrum of normal, you know? Um, well, that's something that I, I, when I realized that bodies not only come in different sizes, but in different shapes, like I just sat there and laughed and I thought, why is this, why is this, why are we making such a big deal out of this? If bodies can come in all kinds of sizes, why can't they come in all kinds of shapes? Why are we worried about this? Well, I mean, it's, when we think about it, like in other realms of our life, like right, when you're thinking about you know, choosing a life partner, I mean, you probably notice that person's body shape, right? And you probably can recognize their body shape because it's not the same as other people's body shape. You know, like, you know, if you see a, a loved one in silhouette, you probably recognize them, Right. Because right. of their posture, because of their shape, because of the width of their shoulders, the size of their head, the size of their ears, the way they stand with their hips, you know, whatever, you know, combination of all of those things. It's like, of course, we're not the same shape. You know, it's preposterous to suggest that we're the same shape. And yet, you know, when we suddenly, when we in a Pilates studio, we put someone behind a plumb line, we go, oh my God, you know, your acromion process is an inch forward of the plumb line. You know, that makes you abnormal. It's like, well, that is so weird that we would... <laughs> I mean, if we, if think about it in like, in terms of like a body image context, right? If we got a whole bunch of people and said, oh no, your hips are wider. That makes you abnormal. It's like, no one would stand for that shit. No. You know, we'd go, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> you know, that's body shaming, right? But now we go, oh, your acromion process is an inch too far forward. Therefore you're abnormal. It's like, oh yeah, that's, yeah, that's fine. You know, like, yeah. why is that? Why do, why do we like compartmentalize this? You know, and it's like, it's just common sense. Of course, we're not the same shape. You know, of course, we're not the same shape. <laughs> like, yeah, so weird. Um, so, well, all right. So if, 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 if there are the, these, uh, you know, I mean, well, actually, there are a couple more things on my list of the, that I would like to uh, sort of, you know, highlight. And, I, and we won't have time to look into the research on, you know, all or even most of these. But um, I think uh, there are a bunch of things that we often think of as injuries that it's it's highly debatable whether they're injuries. So things like disc bulge, um, which uh, do have an association with pain, um, but also are highly prevalent in the pain-free population at all age groups. So it's like something like thirty percent of pain-free 20-year-olds have a disc bulge, you know. So is it and like you know seventy percent of pain-free 40-year-olds have one, right? So is is that a pathology? I mean, how do you define, like, is that abnormal? Like if 70% of people have got it, like, how do you define that as abnormal? Anterior pelvic tilt. 75% um, of women and 85% of men, I think, have an anterior pelvic tilt. Or maybe it's the other way around. But basically, 80% of all people, right, in, in the studies that I've seen, have an anterior pelvic tilt. So it's like, well, is it an anterior pelvic tilt or is that just a pelvis? You know, is that just, is that, like, if 80% of people have got it, you know, What's the definition of normal? 
you know. Well, I guess the way that I see it too as a Pilates teacher is why fix it if it's not bothering you? And that to me was the thing that really got me when I was learning about postural assessment was that we were supposed to look for all of these deviations, for a lack of a better term, and do something about it without even really considering whether or not, A, it was a problem to the person, <laughs> and B, whether they even wanted it fixed. And I just feel like I feel so badly. I want to go back in time and whoever it was that I, uh, whoever's posture I assessed and just said, oh, this this is asymmetrical and this is a deviation. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry I did that. On behalf of all those people, I forgive you. And, um, <laughs> you know, I forgive myself as well. And if you're out there listening to this and you repent, you know, I forgive you also. <laughs> uh, and don't worry about it. It's like, you know, we didn't know any better. So that's what we did. And we do it with good intentions. And now we know better. So we do better. So that's cool, you know. I don't think yeah. we can, I think it's best to not worry about it. Um, all right. So, I mean, there are so many other things uh, on my list here. Labral tears in the hip um, are super common in people with no hip pain. Super common. Um, uh, hypermobility. Um, you know, hypermobility is associated with uh, more pain in adults compared to people who are not hypermobile. But the pain is not specifically at the hypermobile joints. People with hypermobility have more generalized pain sensitivity. So they're more sensitive to heat, cold, pressure, you know. Um, and, you know, I think they have, you know, more, uh, also more psychological distress, more panic attacks, more agoraphobia, you know. Uh, and so it's like, okay, yes, so hypermobility is one of the symptoms of this condition, you know, generally like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, for example, it, hypermobility is a symptom, but it's not a cause of pain. Like there is, because there's no correlation between whether your knees go into hyperextension and whether you have knee pain, for example. Right. So, like, all right, so hypermobility is, seems to be just like it's one end of a spectrum of normal. You know, some people are super stiff, some people are super bendy, and it's like most of us are in the middle somewhere. Uh, and there isn't a correlation between how much pain you have at a joint and the range of motion at that joint, you know. So, you know, and yet we try and fix it and correct it and avoid going into the, quote, pathological or dysfunctional, you know, range. Um, normal garden variety aches and pains, you know, like I think we have this view that, you know, the, the normal state of humans is to be utterly pain-free. It's like, well, whoever said that was a thing, you know, like... <laughs> I mean, like, well, that's why we have an opioid crisis, because I think a lot of people did set that expectation. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, do you, you know, do we think that it would it's normal to never have any emotional discomfort in life? No. You know, of course like if you love people, right, if you strive to achieve goals, from time to time you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> you know, like well, I think we would all agree that that's that's normal to be expected and and you shouldn't expect a life of complete and utter joy every second. Right. So why would you expect to never have any physical pain or discomfort? Why would that be different? You know. Fair point. <laughs> uh, That's why so, we're having this conversation, right? right and <laughs> right. And so we have this, you know, it's like, oh, I've got I've got a pain in my back or whatever. Oh, you've got an anterior pelvic tilt, that must be causing it. It's like, well, what if having your pain in your back is just like normal, you know, congratulations, you're alive, you know? Like 
I was listening to a podcast and I wish I could give them credit. I don't remember um, which podcast it was, but there are these uh, two physical therapists, I think in the Midwest, in the United States, and they describe having just random a, a random bout of back pain as a cold in your back, you know, like how you just get a regular cold and they're just yeah. like, you treat it just like you would a, a cold that you get, you, you know, you take care of yourself a little bit more and just don't worry about it. Get on with your life. It'll get better. And yeah. I just thought, yeah, if we, if we looked at low back pain, chronic low back pain, where it just came on for no good reason. I mean, there's plenty of reasons, right? But if, if you don't quite know why, don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> Right, it'll go away. Right, yeah. yeah. I like uh, I like that uh, cold cold in the low back. Yeah. Um, Louis Gifford calls it uh, garden variety backache. Yeah. Um, which I also like as well because it kind of downplays the the seriousness of it and just says like yeah it's just normal yeah everyone gets it like a cold. Um, all right. So um, there are you know it's it and I don't know if you're listening to this maybe you're a long time listener you've listened to all of our episodes <laughs> and you're like yeah yeah we know that. <laughs> Anterior pelvic tilt's not a dysfunction, or maybe this is your first radio, and you're going like, "What the fuck? Anterior pelvic pelvic tilt is normal, you know? You know, <laughs> how could that be?" Um, there's actually heaps of research on on a lot of these things, and um, I will link to you know selections of it in the show notes. So basically, it's studies where we look at, uh, you know, we just get like pain free, you know, like 200 pain free people, uh, you know, of random ages, socioeconomic backgrounds and whatever, and uh, they measure their pelvic tilt. And what we find is like 80% of them have quite anterior pelvic tilt. Um, so is it really an anterior tilt or is it just like that's the shape of the human pelvis? Um, and, you know, things like, you know, labral tears in the hip, you know, which is part of the labrum is the sort of lip of cartilage that protrudes beyond the, the edge of the joint in the hip uh, to sort of deepen the socket and increase proprioception. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, you know, someone has hip pain, they go and get an MRI, we find, see there's a labral tear and we go, oh, that must be causing hip pain. But if we MRI, you know, 500 people who don't have hip pain, we'll find that like, you know, 260 of them will have labral tears, you know? And so it's like, well, is the labral tear causing hip pain? You know? And then that person with the labral tear with hip pain, you know, they do their rehab, whatever, you know, two years later, no hip pain, MRI them, still got the labral tear, you know? So, so is the label, does the label tear cause a hip pain or was the label tear like just happened to be there and then you, for other unknown reasons, you got hip pain or maybe was the label tear like a contributing factor of many and maybe you can't do much about the label tear, but you can do something about many of the other factors, you know, and so that, you know, can help. And, and then even like when we, we look at the evidence of, um, say surgery. So for instance, in the, in the shoulder with shoulder impingement, where we think like the supraspinatus tendon, the, the rotator cuff tendon in there, gets impinged or squished but between the acromion and the head of the humerus. Uh, and so we can do surgery there to actually decompress that. So basically they, they shave off the bottom of the acromion bone, the shelf of bone over the top of the shoulder, uh, shoulder joint, to give more space. So the supraspinatus muscle tendon doesn't get, you know, squished in, you know, in between those bones. And we find it's like people feel a lot better after that. You know, it's amazing. Um... But then uh, a few years ago, maybe three, four years ago now, in 2018, uh, they did a series series of studies where they gave um, half the people that surgery and they gave the other people a placebo surgery, a sham surgery, where they literally, they said, okay, yeah, we're going to do this acromial decompression on you. They gave them the, they gave them the, 
the anesthetic, count back from 10, 9, and then you wake up after the surgery. They gave them a skin incision, washed their shoulder out with saline, you know, salt water, and sewed it back up. So they, they literally did no surgery apart from a skin incision. And what they found was those people had the exact same amount of improvement and symptom relief as the people who had the bottom of their acromion shaved off. You know, so yes, people feel better after the surgery for subacromial decompression, but it's like that is 100% placebo. You know, it's amazing. And, yeah, and so there are there are lots of other surgeries that have the same thing, like um, meniscal tears in the knee, um, um, degenerative meniscal tears in the knee. But surgery is no better than placebo. There's a whole there's a whole you know, raft of of surgeries that we get for basically musculoskeletal pain um, that are no better. You know, um, disc discectomies for um, back pain uh, and sciatica. Um, uh, yeah, so a whole bunch of surgeries that's like, yeah, people feel way better after the surgery, but it's not the mechanical thing that they did in the surgery that made the difference. Because when we do the surgery without the mechanical thing, they still get the same benefit. Um, and so it's like, yeah, that is based on expectation and placebo and you know, probably other things. They go and do their rehab <laughs> diligently afterwards and stuff. So it's probably a combination of these factors that help. But then we, you know, we mistakenly for years have taken that as evidence that, oh, it was the labrum or it was the in shoulder impingement or it was the disc or it was the whatever. In reality, it was like, nah, you know. Um, yeah, so th there's this, we pathologize normal. We, you know, we, that has become, you know, super common. And now there is pretty strong evidence for a lot of these things that, you know, traditionally in Pilates that we think of as dysfunctions or, you know, non-ideal or pathologies or injuries, um, they're just normal. They're, that's, they're not an injury. They're not a pathology. They're just normal. Um, that's not to say that there is no such thing as pathology or injury. Like those, those are very real, you know, construct, but it just turns out that anterior pelvic tilts, you know, disc bulge, labral tear, hypermobile knees, um, rounded shoulders, not being able to feel your core activating, your hip flexors working when you lift your leg, you know, all of these things are not pathologies. They're just, right. that's how humans function. Um, so, 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 so why, I mean, if, if all of these things are not true, like why, why do we, why does everybody quote know them? I thought about this for a really long time. And the only answer that I have is that we do this because we, we think it's right. We wouldn't do it if we didn't think it was right. No. So from us, from, you know, a and a scientific standpoint, I think Pilates, well, I don't want to just throw Pilates teachers under the bus, but I no, think and we- physical therapists and personal trainers yes, and all, sure. the, all the rest, exercise physiologists, like everyone. Yeah. That's, we think we're right. <laughs> right? Because right. if we didn't think we were right, we wouldn't do that. So, so I mean, I 100% with you, I- think all of this is done with the best of intentions and no one wants to, you know, mislead anyone or do harm to anyone or, you know, say anything that's untrue. And we're just repeating, you know, to the best of our knowledge, what in fact is true. Uh, and, you know, if you listen to this podcast, then, you know, once you know better, you do better and that's all good and all is forgiven. So, you know, no judgment because I think, you know, we've all had that log in our eye of, you know, <laughs> doing those things in the past. And so it's like, yeah, we, we judge not, but why do we think it's true? I mean, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. And one of the things that I, I mean, I can only speak as a as a Pilates teacher and a consumer, right? So I 
if I have a if a, if I have a client coming in who was referred to me by their physical therapist and they said I have this issue therefore I cannot use my hip flexor or I have this issue so I can't bend my knee more than 90 degrees I I don't think I would <laughs> I don't know how I would stand up to that kind of advice from that kind of clinical yeah. advice. Right. All right. I, so, I do my best. Um, and it's, it's always on a case by case basis, but you know, I feel like we're all part of the same soup and we are, I, I don't honestly know what, what is happening because I've listened to this podcast and, and many, many, many other podcasts that are refuting all of the things that you brought up. And yet it still feels like we're swimming against the current. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know how to answer that outside of that. We think it's right. We yeah, think all right. right. So I think, all right. There, well, I think what you're, what you're getting at there is that there are some systemic and, and cultural factors in the broader health and fitness, you know, um, sector, including other professionals, including uh, educators, not just Pilates educators, but like universities churning out physical therapists, et cetera, who are still teaching postural assessment uh, as a way of, you know, correcting dysfunctional patterns and helping people with pain or whatever. And uh, still teaching that kind of corrective exercise mentality uh, or, or um, approach. Uh, and, and there are, you know, X number of tens of thousands of physical therapists currently practicing who were educated 20 years ago or whatever, when that was the current prevailing scientific model of how to help people with back pain or knee pain or whatever. And so it's like, okay, there's this enormous inertia um, and it, not in Australia, but in the US, you have this insurance system where you basically as a physical therapist or as a medical professional, a doctor, massage therapist, whatever, you get paid per treatment that you provide. So, right, if you do, you know, massage plus ultrasound plus dry needling plus exercise, well, that's four treatments. So you get four paychecks, right? So, so you, you know, you get incentivized to provide more treatment and then that's not I'm not dissing physical therapists who provide more treatments. Like, you know, that's a natural consequence of the incentives and constraints that are on them in the medical system. Um, but I think the whole the whole insurance, you know, schema in the US is designed around this quarter century old or outdated for a quarter of a century model of, you know, this biomedical model of, you know, the human being is cogs and levers and pain is the result of cogs and levers being out of whack. No, I never thought about it that way. But, you know, I have some explanation of benefits for my health insurance just right behind me. And, uh, yeah, it is a fee for service. So for every everything that my physical therapist does for me, he gets to bill that as another thing. Yeah. Right. And I don't know. I'm just sort of guesstimating here. But I imagine that, like, there are certain treatments that are justified for certain diagnoses, right? So if you came in with depression and they gave you dry needling, that probably would seem weird, you know. Um, but if you came in and they diagnose you with overactive, overactive upper trapezius and they give you dry needling for that, that's perfectly acceptable, I'm guessing. So probably the, there's some kind of um, indirect incentive, I'm guessing, uh, on physical therapists and doctors to diagnose conditions that will benefit from the treatments that they're able to provide, <laughs> right? Well, I think there's an indirect incentive for for other professions to do the same thing. So if, if I, I'll just use 
a massage therapist and Pilates teachers as examples, we don't get paid extra for doing extra things in a session. But I feel like the incentive is if the clinical and medical world are doing these things, that we have an incentive to emulate them so that we can legitimize our craft. Because there is, I, I don't know if this is true in Australia, but it certainly is here on the West Coast of the United States, where there is a very direct pipeline from physical therapy to Pilates. A lot of my own clients are, um, they, they, their PTs and doctors recommend for them to go to Pilates. And um, my friend Joy she had a really, really good quote. She said, you know, Pilates, we have a reputation of being guardians of safety. And yeah. I think that's a really reinforcing persona. It's a really reinforcing identity to be this guardian of safety that we are, we are, you know, the experts of smart, intelligent, safe exercise. And yeah. we belong in a culture that is dominated by fear and pathoanatomical concepts of pain injury and just the body in general. It's yeah. everywhere. It's, I mean, I just got, I was looking through my, my, my phone and the news app right before I, uh, I got on this call with you. And there was an article in the wellness section that, that, that was entitled, I'm a Pilates instructor and here's the one thing you shouldn't be doing when you curl up. And so of course I had to read it. And it was basically an argument about why you shouldn't imprint when you curl why you should be in neutral and her argument was hold on if, hold on you should be in neutral when you curl when you curl up that's not anatomically possible <laughs> well like, there you go curl it curl it curling means flexing like okay, what so, am i missing here <laughs> so don't shoot the messenger i'm just <laughs> I'm, I'm just summarizing what i read 5 minutes ago which is so this is this is right up there with don't flex your hip with your hip flexors. Exactly. Yeah. So her argument in this article was, I mean, and this is to millions and millions to the whole world. She's, this article goes to the whole world, right? If you have an iPhone. Um, Hold on. I'm, which still, is, I'm still just struggling with this idea. So <laughs> I'm lying on the floor and I'm supposed to curl up, but without flexing my lower back. Like, what the fuck? You know, actually, Raph, I was taught that as well. In fact, I was at a training for osteoporosis and there were a bunch of us from, um, my training studio and then there were some other people who weren't and the the trainer was not from my studio and we had a really really big discussion about staying in neutral when you curl that you're supposed to stay in neutral so when you curl up you keep the you keep that little pocket of air right behind uh, under your back when you curl did you not teach that in your as no, a stock I did trainer not, thank God. okay um, <laughs> uh, it is it is currently guideline best practice when working with osteoporotic clients to avoid loaded flexion. So for osteoporotic clients, I would not do roll-ups, right? But instead of saying, hey, let's do a roll-up but do it in neutral, it's like, well, that's not a roll-up. That's a hinge. Like we could do hinges. Right. Um, you can do planks, you can do bird dogs, you can do all kinds of, you know, leg pull fronts and backs and all kinds of things to work their abs, but just not in flexion. So, th yeah, so that is, that is a, that's a true thing currently. But what, you know, what I'm just, my brain is, struggling with is how do you curl in neutral you know well so for instance when i was taught when i was taught the the series of five right um do it in neutral uh so we're just doing thoracic flexion yeah we're just talking about neutral. 
Yeah, so mm-hmm. that's kind of the McGill, you know, big right. three way. Um, yeah. But, and I, so I can understand, okay, you're doing the 100, you're doing crisscross, whatever, straight single leg stretch. You know, you can do that with a neutral lumbar spine if you really, you know, Right, so this article it. was saying yeah. that you should always do it in neutral because if you're if you're imprinting your spine, if you're pressing your low back into the mat when you're doing these curl-up exercises, that you are losing the benefit of the abdominal strengthening opportunity. Uh, that was her that was lack, her argument. Lack of understanding of basic physiology muscle physiology and how strengthening you know, what triggers strengthening. Which I guess is mechanical tension on muscle fibers. My argument is now, as a very um, laid back Pilates teacher, is I, I don't care. Yeah. Do what you want, but the, or, or try it all. See see what help, see what works better for you. Or if you like it more challenging, try it in neutral. I don't care. Yeah, and 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 not having a go at this person who wrote this, but the idea itself that it kind of is just. I guess what I find perplexing about the whole thing is like, this is coming from an anatomical perspective, right? The argument is, you know, because of physiology slash biomechanics, you know, keep this position or you lose the benefit of the exercise, right? But it's patently untrue, right? And, you know, a 10 minute discussion of physiology and the physiology of strength training would conclusively (laughs) show that you can absolutely fucking strengthen your abs in imprint, neutral flexion, whatever. And it's not a function of the position so much as it is that the the level of mechanical tension on the individual muscle fibers. Um, So so it's like, it's this anatomical argument based on incorrect understanding of anatomy. You know, that's what kind (laughs) of drives me bananas. Well, and it's, I, and, and, and to your point, I am not trying to shit on this person who obviously got this information from what she thought was a right. credible source. And that's true for all of us in, yeah. in everything that we've ever said. I would, have, I would never have wanted to spread pseudoscience or say yeah. nocebic things to my, to my students. Yep, yeah. and I've done it. I've done it. You know, I've, I've told people to do their hundreds in neutral. You know, I've been there. Uh, I don't think I said it was because you lose the anatomical benefit. I think it's because I was sort of brainwashed in my McGill phase at that stage, and I was mm. like, "Oh no, your your discs will explode if you imprint," sort of thing, um, which we know now is not true. But um, all right, so why do we believe this? You know, why do we pathologize? Well, because physical therapists tell us, because uh, you know, universities churn out those you know belief systems because we want to legitimize ourselves as a profession, so we kind of want to take on the mannerisms and, you know, trappings of physical therapy, chiropractic, whatever, massage therapy, whatever it might be. Uh, and, you know, also just because, like, that's the wisdom that's handed down from our teachers and that was handed down to them from their teachers. Uh, you know, interestingly, most of it didn't come from Joseph Pilates, like all that neutral stuff he never mentions it. He was actually advocates jamming your lie back into the mat in supine. Um, he never talks about scoliosis or disc bulge or muscle activation. Well, he and, never talked you know, about... Anatomy. Yeah, he didn't doesn't mention the names <laughs> of muscles. Um, At least that was that's what uh, per cage lion. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that's my well, understanding. Well, we uh, at Breathe Education in our certification program, we use the as you know, we use uh, Return to Life through Controlology as a textbook, and so you know I've read through that book multiple times, and I've got it on my Kindle, and I've done word searches for the word you know abdominals or you know, rectus femoris or hip flexors or quads or glutes or butt or it's like there. He literally doesn't mention the name of muscles in that book, except for twice, I think in the, 
in the side bend, he says, you know, as an as the one of the sort of cautions at the end, he said, "This is good for the arm muscles" or something like that. Yeah. Um, and in one of the other exercise, I can't remember which one, he says, "Like this is good for the abdominals." Like, but it's not like activate your abdominals. It's just like yeah. at the end of the exercise. P.S. This is good for the abdominals. You know. Um, so you know, so he really doesn't talk about muscles. In fact, he specifically says, you know, don't. You know, Pilates is not for strengthening this or that pet set of muscles. Instead, it's for the uniform development of the body as a whole. Um, and I've slightly butchered that quote, but it's, you know, that's basically the, the intention of it. So, yeah, a lot of this didn't come from Joseph Pilates. Uh, it's come subsequently through the classical era and the contemporary era uh, from, you know, it's leaked into Pilates from physical therapy and exercise science, you know, circa 1990s to early 2000s. Um, all right, so we've got, and the kind of, you know, as Zig Ziglar once said, then uh, those those cookies you put in the oven where they squatted to rise, but they got baked in the squat, you know, so like they didn't, <laughs> they kind of flopped. And, and I think that's kind of what happened with Pilates with, with all these kind of biomedical beliefs that we inherited from physical therapy, et cetera, in the sort of late 1990s, is that, you know, we, we, we squatted to rise, but we got baked in the squat. So we like took on these sort of scientific, uh, you know, viewpoints from physical therapy in order to be current, right? And and in 1999, this was current information. But then physical therapy has moved on. And well, some Pilates physical got, therapy. Some physical therapy has moved on. Has moved on. Pilates got baked in the squat. You know, we're still doing like, hey, this is current 1999, you know, science. You know, activate your core and, you know, get out of your anterior pelvic tilt. Stretch your pecs to avoid upper cross syndrome. Um, well, from a business standpoint, it makes complete sense to me that, you know, if, if Pilates wants to, if Pilates wants to put on this mantle of being a pipeline to physical therapy, that it's just going to align itself with whatever clinical and physical therapy principles are, you know, are being espoused. And I think that that's still happening. I, I went to PT the other day and my PT reminded me to set my core and I just kind of giggled and, <laughs> and did my bird dog. Uh, um, all right. So I so see yeah, setting your core, not a thing. I mean, it is a thing that you can do, but it's not a thing that has any influence over whether you have back pain right. or not. Um, yeah. Uh, or, how much power you can develop in your limbs or any of any other darn thing. Um, uh, all right. So let's talk a little bit about the consequences. Uh, and, you know, we, we sort of, uh, book, we sort of, um, you know, bullet pointed them at the start, which are when we pathologize something like an anterior pelvic tilt or, you know, not activating your core properly or having rounded shoulders or whatever it might be, we, we, we create, uh, often um, you know, negative um, pain beliefs in that person that, you know, my pain is caused by my dysfunctional whatever. Or even if I don't have pain, you know, my dysfunctional pelvis will probably cause me pain if I don't, quote, fix it. So I need to, you know, avoid doing X, Y, Z exercises, you know, that my Pilates instructor told me to avoid and, you know, diligently do my postural stretches, etc. Otherwise, I will have pain and injury and dysfunction as I get older. 
Uh, and that creates fear avoidance, which means people start avoiding certain movements and sometimes avoiding the activities that are meaningful to them. Uh, people become like, you know, uh, hyper vigilant about their bodies and their movements. It's like we're always kind of scanning our body. Does that hit? Does that hurt? Is my hip in the right alignment? You know, is my pelvis tilting? Uh, and that can also create um, other sequelae of like, you know, excessive healthcare utilization. So I've like, oh, I've got a back pain. Oh no, it's probably my anterior pelvis. So I'd better go to the physiotherapist and or the chiropractor and get cracked back so my pelvis is correctly positioned again. So it creates excessive healthcare usage and uh, also just worse outcomes. So people end up having more pain, more disability um, as a result of these things. So for example, when we uh, you know give people early MRIs for back pain, uh, they have worse outcomes. You know, they have more pain, longer disability, um, more healthcare utilization, more uh, pain medication, more surgery, you know, compared to the person with the exact same MRI findings who doesn't have an early MRI. So it's not it's not the fact that they had an MRI, it's having it early that is the problem. And so we're basically pathologizing, oh, you've got a disc bulge, it's like, but we don't mention like, yeah, so does 70% of people your age who don't have back pain, you know. <laughs> uh, and then people go, oh my God, I've got a disc bulge, I better have surgery, or I better have opioids, or I better get my posture corrected, or I better never bend again, or whatever. Um, yeah, so there, there are real actual physical, financial, and emotional harms that result from this this kind of pathologizing. Is is there, you know, what else sort of do you want to say about, you know, about that? Well, on the ground, I feel like there is still a lot of, it's just a culture of fear and fragility and, you know, a lot of health-seeking behaviors. Here in Seattle, people love to be healthy. And so, you know, there's a lot of diet culture. There's a lot of fitness culture. And I wonder whether there's an actual meaningful benefit to all of this kind of behavior or if it's just feeding into all our our anxieties about what is likely for for many of us just a normal aging process and a and trying to be trying to avoid any sort of pain um yeah um, i you know i i just it is one of the things that i love best about teaching is to try to get people to have fun and just forget about their bodies really not worry so much about correcting because i think the other consequence on the ground in the pilates studio is that when we start when we start pathologizing things that are normal we end up teaching in a way that's highly corrective and highly supervised and and there's just this this void of freedom of movement and just having fun and relaxing. I have had students come into my class who haven't taken my class before and they are just so worried about, am I doing this right? Where should I be feeling this? How, how high should I be lifting my leg? How much should I be turning my hip out? All of these things that I think are just not necessary. Which muscles should I be contracting? Right. And really I'm just, you know, my, I just want you to move and not worry and so much about it. What's also weird, which I've had happen before, is uh, you know when I when I started teaching with without anatomical cues and telling people which, which muscles to activate, you know some of my clients would say like, oh, 
you know, we'd be teaching, I'd be teaching a certain exercise. They're like, oh, you haven't told us to activate our abs yet. And I'm like, well, I told you the last hundred times, like, <laughs> have you figured it out yet? <laughs> like, um, that, which is so weird. Um, yeah. Uh, what, what really uh, I want to double click on there is what you said about um, you want people to forget their bodies, which to me jumped out because uh, a lot of what I see uh, on social media and in Pilates classes I've been to, you know, over the years is it's all about increasing focus on the body, you know, so right. becoming more body aware and, and, and really tuning in to what's happening in your body. So, uh, and we did it, uh, Chloe and I did an episode on this a while back about interoception and body awareness and the relationship between, um, you know, so interoception is just the ability to perceive what's happening inside your self, you know, so you can perceive, you know, whether you're full or hungry, whether you're cold or hot, whether you're itchy or, you know, whatever. Um, and, uh, and and there's a there's a kind of a paradoxical relationship between interoception and pain, and it's not always the case that more body awareness is a better thing, because uh, sometimes when we, uh, when well actually the relationship was uh, was um, mediated by anxiety, and so basically when people have higher body awareness and they kind of scan their body repeatedly, if they attend towards being anxious. Well, that can actually only heighten their anxiety because they like you scan your body and then you detect something. Oh, I've got a sensation in my back. You know, oh, is that bad? D- am I doing it wrong? Am I, am I using the wrong muscles? Am I going to hurt myself? You know, should I stop? You know, is anyone else this or is it just me? Like, and and so it can it actually can create more <laughs> problem, um, and that can actually cause people to change the way they're moving, which can actually cause you know discomfort or pain. Not because it's injurious, but just because like moving in weird ways sometimes can be uncomfortable or like, you know, tensing muscles twice as much as they need to be tense because you're trying to quote, protect the area. Right. Um, so yeah, so we can kind of go down a rabbit hole when we sort of become super body aware and it's not, it's not a, it's not a lay down the misere that more body awareness is better. So is that, is that, you know, is that what you are thinking about when you said, you know, you want people to, to not be aware of their bodies when they're working out with you? I know it seems really it seems really counterintuitive, right? Because in Pilates we're supposed to be incredible we're supposed to be scanning our bodies all the time. At least well, that's not the way that to Joseph Pilates his well, goal was for you to just get into <laughs> right. a mindless flow state. Right. I wasn't taught by Joseph Pilates. I was taught by contemporary Pilates trainers and the whole idea was to always be fully aware of everything that you're doing and I found that for me in my own practice it wasn't helpful that it did really just increase my anxiety. And one of the things that I was thinking about was when I was in a Pilates class as a student, I was corrected so much that I really felt like I was back in dance school. But in dance school, I was preparing either for a public performance or for a competition. And Pilates is not any of those things. And so for me, I just, part of me not correcting my students is I want them to be able to get into a flow. I want them to just be able to relax their, their minds. And I don't think that's possible if I'm constantly asking them, you know, when you do a, when you do a frog bend, make sure your knees don't go past your hips, which is a cue that a lot of a lot of Pilates teachers in my studio teach, and I just couldn't figure out why. 
I don't understand it. It's one of those gorillas on the ladder with the hose situations. Yeah. So as as a Pilates consumer myself, having so many cues and rules about movement just didn't feel right. And so for just being able to being able to learn Pilates the way Joseph probably taught it, if you look at Return to Life and just his instructions, it's it's nice. It's nice to be able to just move the body and, and not worry yeah. about being judged and corrected and supervised. And if it hurts, okay, let's figure out another way. Um, and if you're doing something completely different than what I'm asking you to do, maybe I will say, hey, that's a really great exercise, but that's not what we're doing right now. Um, but otherwise, yeah, you know, I just- over want- and lie on your tummy like everyone else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but otherwise, I, um, I really just want people to feel like this is their workout. And so one of the things that I was thinking about too, with just the way that um, many Pilates teachers teach Pilates, where they're, there's a lot of rules, there's a, there's a specific ideal of how to hold your posture and how to execute an exercise. To me, that really is a barrier to body autonomy. And there's so much talk right now about body autonomy, like in the United States, um, you know, women are wondering whether or not we're going to be able to have abortions, right? So we we shouldn't tell women whether or not they can have abortions, but we should tell them whether they can hold their shoulders backwards or not. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'm going to get a lot of haters on this, uh, but I had to say it. uh, I'm not commenting on the abortion issue, (laughs) of which I support women having the right to make a choice. But Yeah, me too. It's like, why do we say, you know, it's like, it's the same argument, isn't it? But it's just back to front. Right. So I, I think about it in terms of body autonomy, and and I, I want people to be able to choose their own spring settings if they want to. Uh, I want people to choose how far they want to go in an exercise, how high they can lift their leg, how much they want to turn out. One of the things that was happening to me when I was doing Pilates is I have a... a uh, one of my um, femurs is more, uh, just a little bit more internally rotated. So when I'm doing a hip turnout on my right leg, I always get corrected. And I was getting corrected to the point where people were trying to turn my leg out a little bit more and I kept getting injured. And, you know, it's it's frustrating to to be in a class where your teacher is telling you to do something and it feels like shit. Because yeah. your teacher thinks that this is the the right position or the right alignment, um, yeah. and and you know there are so you know just anatomically thinking about that for a moment, there are so many potential reasons why you might have less turnout on that hip than you know on your other hip or on you know the average person or the, you know the teacher or whatever, and it might be so the the socket of the hip, the acetabulum, you know there's a variation amongst people and also within each person left to right, there's a variation in how much that faces forwards versus sideways, you know. So on most people, it faces kind of diagonally forwards and sideways, you know, but some people it's a little bit more forwards and some people it's a little bit more sideways. And if you're a person whose hip sockets face a little bit more forwards, well, your hips are going to, you know, your knees are going to turn in towards each other a bit more and your toes are going to turn in towards each other a bit more. And as you turn out, your maximum range is going to be less, right? And as you turn in, your maximum range is going to be more. And so that's one thing. It might be also like how deep the hip socket is. You know, people with, you know, there's variation, you know, we're all in, you know, within some range of normal, right? But normal is a range, not a specific 
number. And so some people have slightly shallower hip sockets. Some people have slightly deeper hip sockets. Those with deeper hip sockets are going to have less range of motion because the neck of the femur is going to bang into the edge of the hip socket, you know, earlier if the, because, you know, the hip socket's deep. Imagine the egg cup is deeper, right? Well, the egg's going to be more stable in there, right? It's not going to move as far. So, right, well, so there might be a bony, you know, limitation to that. The neck of the femur, the shaft of the femur, all of these things, you know, are at varying angles in different people, you know? So it's like you might not have tight adductors or whatever, right? You might just have a freaking hip socket that faces a bit more forward on that side, and that is your normal. It is my normal. Yeah. And what's funny is that it's only in Pilates classes that I was corrected. All of my physical therapists, it, they don't bother yeah. with that. But I also found that that Pilates, at least in my experience, um, Pilates studios tend to correct movement more than my physical therapists. That's yeah. been my experience. Yeah. Mine too. It's so weird. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm struggling to let it go. But it's like when we, we look at each other's or our own faces, like when you look, everyone looks in the mirror unless you're like literally a supermodel. But if you if you look in the mirror, like we all have a large number of asymmetries in our face. Like, you know, one ear is bigger or higher than the other. Your eyes aren't perfectly level. Your nose isn't perfectly straight. When you smile, one side of your mouth goes up more than the other. Your teeth aren't perfectly straight. Your eyebrows are, you know, it's like we all have asymmetry in our faces, right? And it's like, well, if none of us had asymmetry in our faces, we'd all look identical and, you know, you wouldn't be able to tell and you wouldn't be able to tell them apart, right? Like, it'd be like, cows look to us, they all look the same to me, you know, apart from black ones versus brown ones. But it's like, put, give me a herd of black cows, I can't tell the difference between one another. I'm sure the cows can. But if we all were identical, you know, it's like, we wouldn't even tell, be able to tell, you wouldn't be able to tell your kids apart. <laughs> um, and so it's like, we take that for granted. That's like, of course, people's faces are asymmetrical. That's normal, right? And it's like, well, when you go and get your shoes, you know, surely... 99% of people have one foot that's slightly bigger than the other, you know. Maybe it's not a, or a one half leg. size. Right? <laughs> or one leg that's longer than the other. One leg's a little bit longer. It's like normal, to, you know, five to 10 millimeters, I think, difference in leg length is is the normal variation of the, of the pain-free population. So like these, these asymmetries are completely and utterly normal. And yet for some reason we have this kind of weird expectation that pelvises are perfectly symmetrical or, you know, hip sockets are perfectly symmetrical or femurs are perfectly symmetrical. So like, why would, if your left ear is bigger than your right ear, you know, what rule says that your left femur has to be exactly the same size and shape as your right femur? Well, and I wonder too, if part of the value that we have um, in Pilates is that we, we understand that symmetry is 100% that 100% symmetry is not possible, but we're striving towards some kind of symmetry, whether that's a muscle balance mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, or an alignment balance. I feel like that's been the message that was given to me as a, as a new Pilates instructor was that my job was to try to help my students achieve as much balance as possible. Mm. Well, I think balance, you know, when we could sort of deconstruct what we mean by balance and I'd be, you know, uh, in principle, you know, prepared to agree that balance could be a good thing to strive for, depending on how we define balance. But I think symmetry is not something to strive for um, because what if your fucking hip socket faces forwards, right? And the more symmetrical we make you, the more pain you have, 
You know, well, like, yeah. like, why is that a good thing? Yeah. Well, and the, the truth of the matter is my, my let, my hips, my hip external rotation is asymmetrical and I am pain free. It's only painful when, when you make it symmetrical. People try to fix it. Yeah. I was actually at the, um, a few months ago, I was at the massage therapist's office and it was a person that was new to me. She was not my regular massage therapist. And she started off with a postural assessment and she did notice with my exter external rotation on my right side that it was, that there was less range of motion. And so she said to me when I was on the table, we're going to fix this. And of course, I was never going to see her again. After she said, well, I was never going to see her again. She was after dead she, to you in that moment. Exactly. Well, she, I was never going to see her again after she did a postural assessment on me. But when she said, I'm going to fix your hip, I thought, oh, lady, this just, just do the massage. And I just, yeah. you know, I had a mask on, so I was just mouthing things yeah. under my mask. But it's what I guess going back to the point that it's everywhere. We're all in this. It's yeah, ubiquitous. Yeah, yeah. It's really yeah. hard. I mean, you and I are talking probably to an echo chamber of people who are just probably zoning out already because they're like, yeah, we already agree with If all you're of out this. there listening to this, you are in the 1%. <laughs> and I don't think it's the 1%. I think it's like the 15 or 20% of people, uh, you know, in the health profession who are on board with the, the current evidence base. Um, so yeah, you're not, you're still an elite, don't worry, but, um, you're a smaller elite than we thought, a bigger elite than we thought. Um, all right. So, uh, I, I just, I just briefly want to touch on, you know, something I often get a shitload of DMs about after we talk about, um, you know, debunking some particular biomedical construct like anterior pelvic tilt or scapular stability or whatever which is people often DM me and I'm anticipating this and trying to nip it in the bud or no, I want you to DM me if you've got a question, but I'm trying to answer your question preemptively. So I don't have to answer the same question like 30 times in the DMs. Um, you know, okay, well that's all good and great, but if anterior pelvic tilt doesn't cause pain, you know, well, what does, you know, why do I have pain? You know, why does my back hurt when I use my hip flexors or whatever, you know? Why does my shoulder hurt when I raise my arm if it's not because of my shoulder mechanics? Um, and the answer to that is uh, the really honest answer is science doesn't know why that why that happens. Uh, and the slightly more um, detailed answer is pain is multifactorial. It's complex. It's not we we don't know you know precisely what causes it, but we've ruled out a few things. And one of the things that we've definitively ruled out, we know for sure is not the case, is that pain has a, pain doesn't have a single cause. It's not the case that A causes B. You know, anterior pelvic tilt causes pain. Disc bulge causes pain. Shoulder instability causes pain. These things are not true. And we know that, you know, very, very confidently. Um, we, it, it's probably the case that, and so pain also doesn't even equate to tissue damage. So tissue damage doesn't even cause pain. It's pretty closely associated with it. You know, if, you know, you stub your toe, there's a really good chance that's going to hurt. Okay. But not always, because if you are running for your life from a, 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 a lion, when you stub your toe, it won't hurt. <laughs> right. If you were running to save the life of your child who was about to go on the road, and you stub your toe, it wouldn't hurt. Right? Or if so, you have a phantom limb and it hurts, you have no right. tissue, but you have pain. 
Right. So people after having their leg amputated still get knee pain, 85% of people. So so you can have pain without injury and have injury without pain, and often they go together, but they're not the same thing. And uh, pain is multifactorial and complex, and it's not caused by a single factor ever. So even when you stub your toe and there's like damage to your toe and it hurts, it is also, uh, whether you have pain or not and how much pain you have, is also dependent on the context. You know, are you running to save your child from the road or not? You know, did you have three nights of poor sleep and have got a hangover and then you stub your toe? It's going to hurt more, right? So these, these you know, non-tissue uh, damage related factors, you know, are important. Um, uh, and then, uh, so I think a much better metaphor for, you know, pain is the cup of resilience, which I didn't make up. I can't recall who did. I got it from Greg Lehman. I think I'm not sure if he made it up or someone else, but basically we think of, uh, a cup that is, you know, basically how much, you know, your stress, your body, your mind, your, your, your spirit can tolerate. And we think of stressors as things that basically serve to, you know, threaten to disrupt your homeostasis. So, and stressors could be physical, you know, mental, emotional, um, social. And so it could be like, you know, you pour in some in things into the cup and you pour in maybe some lack of sleep and you pour in some financial worries and you pour in some, you know, low-grade inflammation in your back and you pour in some, you know, negative pain beliefs and you pour in some, you know, a loved one's very ill and you're worried about that, you know, and you pour in a whole bunch of stuff. And if you pour in, if the cup overflows then in this metaphor, the overflow can be pain. And so in that situation, it's like, well, none of those individual things that you poured into the cup actually caused the pain per se, but it was the aggregate. It's the accumulation of things overall. And so it's not the case that not sleeping enough causes pain or having inflammation in your disc causes pain or having a loved one that's unwell causes pain. It's like just all of those things too much can be too, uh, at once can be too much. And so you know, pain probably doesn't have a single cause and what caused your pain is probably the wrong question. And so, yeah, pain is, is multifactorial. We know that for sure. We don't know exactly how to determine for each individual person what are the particular factors. You know, we've got some clues and some hints and some, you know, reasonable strategies to, to start to un, unpick that. But um, it's we do know for sure that pain is multifactorial. It's complex. It doesn't have a single cause. It's not the same thing as tissue damage, and you cannot predict whether someone's going to have pain or not based on their pelvic tilt, their shoulder position, their whether they activate their core, or whether they use the hip flexors to flex their hip or not. Well, and one of the things that is really important to me is that as a Pilates teacher, if I'm only focusing on the biomechanics of pain, the biomechanical the biological part of pain, and I tell my student, oh, you have back pain, we're going to work on your pelvic tilt, and we work on their pelvic tilt, and it doesn't work, that's also damaging, because, I mean, what does that, what does that do to my client's confidence about, <laughs> about yeah. movement, or about Pilates, or my skills, or whatever, right? So, um, I, I'm really, really careful when my students come in and they say, I'm having back pain and it's because I have a weak core. So can you please do some ab exercises with me? I just have to be really careful about what I say because I, they already have this belief, but also if we can do 
a ton of ab exercise. And if you come back three months later and you're still having back pain, then, you know, I didn't do my job. Yep. Yep. Well, I mean, anecdotally, I see that a lot is people come and say, oh, you know, I need to strengthen my core. Well, I've got back pain. And I'm like, oh, what have you been doing? Like being up, I've been doing yoga or Pilates or whatever for the last five years. I'm like, oh, <laughs> you, you still got back pain. Um, uh, in fact, the um, ACSM, the American College of Sports Medicine, in their current guidelines on exercise testing and prescription, um, uh, say in relation to low back pain that, and I'm just going to read this out here, clinicians should not utilize patient education and counseling strategies, should not utilize education and counseling strategies that either directly or indirectly increase the perceived threat or fear associated with low back pain, such as education and counseling strategies that provide in-depth pathoanatomical explanations for the specific cause of the patient's low back pain. So in other words, you shouldn't be telling your clients that you know, oh, your disc bulge slash anterior pelvic tilt slash weak core slash whatever, you know, is causing your back pain. Um, instead, and this is from the ACSM, patient education should, quote, um, emphasize the promotion of the understanding of the anatomical and structural strength inherent in the human spine, the neuroscience that explains pain perception. So for instance, the cup of resilience metaphor that I just used, the overable favorable prognosis of low back pain, um, and the importance of improvement in activity levels, not just pain relief. Um, so we shouldn't be telling people that it's your disc or your pelvic tilt or your whatever, um, because that causes harm. Um, and those are actual just current guidelines, and I'll link to those. Uh, I can't actually share the actual guidelines because you have to buy the book. <laughs> it's forty-five US dollars, uh, but I'll link. I'll link to the book, which is if, if you're a Pilates instructor and you have clients who are injured or have medical conditions or have special um, considerations like pregnancy, older adults, kids, etc. cetera. Uh, this is a fantastic resource. It's the current um, uh, required reading textbook for our Diploma of Clinical Pilates. It is a fantastic book. And for $45, it's, I reckon, the best $45 you could spend. No, apart from $5 to buy my book, which is going to tell you just as much, probably more useful information for a ninth of the price. But after you've bought my book, uh, spend the next $45 on the ACSM guide and um, you'll have like specific recommendations on how to work out people who have all kinds of uh, medical conditions and considerations. Um, all right. So let's let's sort of, you know, start to, to bring it home and think like, all right, so if assuming that, uh, you know, we, assuming that we agree because uh, I'm, I'm guessing that if you violently disagree with what we're saying, you've probably already tuned out. So, you know, that's cool. Um, that if, you know, assuming that we agree that we shouldn't pathologize normal or we want to stop pathologizing normal, okay, well, as, if we've been trained, you know, and if I've been practicing teaching, if I've been teaching Pilates for X number of years or whatever, and it's like, well, what I do on a daily basis, you know, is posture analysis, you know, corrective exercise, <laughs> stretching tight hip flexors, telling people their anterior pelvic tilt is causing their back pain, cueing muscle activation, telling people to not turn their legs out too far in the frog press. It's like if that's basically, that's what I spend all day doing, right? And now I want to not do that. Well, what the fuck do I do instead? You know, like, do I, is it just a, is it just an empty room and I, and people come in and I just like, Hey people just do whatever the fuck you want. I'm not going to tell you nothing. Like, it's like, what's, what do we do instead? 
One of the lessons that I learned the hard way was to start seeking out other opinions, to start looking for research, look for current evidence-based research, look for, think, for me, it's just doing a simple Spotify search for biopsychosocial model of pain, um, listening to Pilates elephants. Uh, yeah, I think it was re it's really important to be able to identify sources of education that are reflecting current evidence-based practices and understanding. I think that's a, a, the first step. It's not enough. I, I realized it wasn't enough for me to just go back to my Pilates textbooks to learn about how to work with specific injuries and pathologies. I needed to, I needed to look outside of, outside of my mainstream Pilates textbooks. Yeah. I, I think, uh, that's such great advice. So look outside of Pilates for uh, information and search, uh, search Spotify or Apple Podcasts for biopsychosocial. Um, um, and we can list a couple of our favorite podcasts. If you've listened to this before, you probably heard us rattle these off, but the NAF Physio Podcast, NAF, uh, with Adam Meekins and Greg Lehman, uh, the Knowledge Exchange, TKX, it's a biopsychosocial podcast, the Better Clinician project the level up initiative um there 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 are quite a few of them um and if you start to listen to those you'll go down a rabbit hole and they'll start recommending other ones and <laughs> before you know it um you know and, and if you're in the u.s or you can get, make it to the u.s there's a san diego pain summit every february um which I actually believe they do online now as well you can you can attend live online and i've been to that a couple of times it's fantastic they have a bunch of speakers from you know, amazing speakers from around the world uh you know scientists mostly presenting on, you know, pain neuroscience and so on, but in a very, very user-friendly, you know, way that, you know, you can understand if you don't have a degree in anything. Um, and it's like, how do you apply these findings with your clients? That's 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 what it's all about. Um, yeah, so there are some fantastic people to follow also on social media, Adam Meekins, Greg Lehman, um, Ben Cormack, um, and any other favorites you've got you want to shout out? There are so many. I can't yeah. even think. There, there are so many people. And I think that's really the most reassuring thing is that yeah. even though the predominant model is still very pathoanatomical, biomedical, there are plenty of voices out there that are trying to get through and break through these these myths and these yeah. this kind of dogma. Yeah. Um, uh there's a couple others that just came to mind for me. No bullshit physio, uh, strength in evidence physio. Um, yeah, there there are uh, quite a few um, that uh, if you follow me on Instagram, uh, I post di pretty much daily on this kind of thing. And also you will see me sharing a lot of posts from a lot of these folks on, on the regular. So, yeah, so once you get outside the Pilates bubble um, and into the sort of evidence-based healthcare bubble – um, you'll find this information is freely available. The other thing that I found really helpful, Raf, was um, the different, can you talk about some of the, I think you talked about the ACSM, yeah, you talked about the ACSM yeah. guideline. That's a good, that's a good resource to have too, because that right there tells you so much about how you should be approaching people who have different kinds of conditions and injuries like that was really helpful for me to learn about yeah. just dealing with pregnancy which again we pathologize people who are pregnant i did yeah 
I, I considered them to be fragile and broken people that I really needed to treat with very, very, you know, delicate <laughs> kid gloves. Yeah. And, yeah. and then learning about the different guidelines on uh, pregnancy and exercise, it was a relief to know that pregnant women are not going to break. They need yeah, to exercise. And they, can, yep. they can exercise and it's good for yep. them. <laughs> yeah, they have to exercise in order to prepare for what's going to happen next. Yeah. So um, that was really helpful. Yeah, ACSM guidelines are awesome. Um, all right, so but just like let's just give some, some, you know, nuts and bolts advice. All right, so if, if I'm used to saying, okay, everyone, we're going to do the hundred, so inhale to prepare, gently draw your navel towards your spine, gauge your pelvic floor 25%, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, squish the grape under your lower back or don't squish the grape under your lower back, as the case may be, whether you're into imprint or neutral. Uh, you know, slide your scapulae down your back and, you know, the whole litany of things, right? So if, if, if I'm used to doing things that way, like what do I do instead? And if I'm used to correcting people on their turnout or lack of it or whatever, it's like, well, I'm teaching a class, like what do I do? You know, like what do you do when you teach? If you don't do all of those things, like what do you do? Well, for teaching the 100, I just tell people to curl up and start pumping their arms. You can decide what you want to do with your legs. If you want them on the floor, fine. Or if you are feet on the floor, or if you want to bring the knees into the chest, if you're ready to stretch your legs out a little bit, higher, keep them higher, keep them lower. It's just very simple. If I feel like someone's shoulders are really scrunchy, I might just say, "What it feel? Like, how would it feel like to just kind of relax a little bit more?" I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, their shoulders are helping them do the hundred. So if they really feel like they have to scrunch their shoulders, um, that's fine. Yeah, work those upper traps. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. And so what if your client is doing the hundred wrong? Like, what do you do then? Well, define wrong. Oh, we'll just say like I'm in imprint when I should be in neutral or vice versa. I don't correct them. Mm-mm. I don't correct them. I don't believe that there is a right or wrong way to do movement. And maybe, you know, there are going to be people out there who disagree with me. And I know that I was looking through some of my old Pilates style magazines and there's a, there's a, a, a section in the magazine that was devoted to breaking down an exercise so that you could teach it properly and it took me a long time to figure out that that was really just one way to teach an exercise, mm, that mm. we all have different ways to do it. And so I, I just don't feel like I have the right to tell people that this is the wrong way to do the hundred. Mm. I have an idea of how I want to do it. And I feel like when, um, as, as a teacher in the class, that I have a pretty good idea of what I want to see, but at the end of the day, it's if they're moving and they're having fun and they're not doing a side plank when I'm asking them to do the hundred, I'm cool. Like I'm really cool with that. And uh, if I, I do tell people because I ha I do have some students who really want feedback and they don't feel like they're getting their money's worth if they're not getting feedback from me, I do give them feedback if they want to, but they have to ask for it. And I do say I I don't typically get correct a lot. But if you want me to, I certainly can do that. And I can, I can be picky with you about your alignment if you want me to. But, but I feel like there's more benefit for you to be able to not think so hard when you're in my class and to just move your body and feel like you're working really hard. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, I'm, I'm with you and that's the way I like to teach as well. And I would like to also acknowledge that, um, 
I think it's I think it's totally fine to be super picky about alignment. Uh, picky isn't necessarily the right word. I like uh, have very specific uh, ideas of how you want the exercise done. If your purpose is to, you know, teach the original repertoire as Joseph intended, or teach the classical repertoire as Romana intended, or, or whatever it might be. And I think it's absolutely legitimate and fine to say, we're going to do it this way because that's the way Joseph did it. Or we're going to do it this way because that's the classical way of doing this exercise. Like, it's like if, you know, we've used this example a bunch of times, but if like, if you go to a tango class, it's like, well, I want to learn the right way to do the tango. I don't want to just like be freestyle, you know, interpretive dancing. And the instructor, oh yeah, it's whatever you do is fine. You know, it doesn't matter. It's like, no, I want to learn, you know, show me how to do the tango. Um, and tell me when my arm should is too high or too low or, or, or whatever. And I, so I think that's fine as well. I don't think it's better or worse than saying, hey, just move your body, you know, whatever feels good for you. I think it's like, well, we're all individuals and we get to choose that for ourselves. And I don't think one is more or less beneficial. And I, I do believe that you can lose yourself in a flow state by focusing on trying to attain, you know, good technique in an exercise. But And by good technique, I mean faithful to the original intention of Joseph or Romano or whoever, you know, you're trying to emulate, not necessarily biomechanically, you know, better or worse, but just like, okay, that's the way you do the tango sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, so I think that's a, a valid and valuable way of teaching. I, I don't think it's a good thing to, you know, constantly be correcting people throughout the movement because I think that pulls people out of flow and is counterproductive to the developing movement skill. But, you know, getting to do the hundreds and then getting, pulling them out of it and say, Hey, look, you know, why don't you try that again this time, you know, really stretch the back of your t-shirt towards the mat and reach, you know, the toes of your socks towards the opposite wall a bit further. Let's see if you can do that again, you know, or showing them a video of themselves. You know, you take a video on their phone of them and go, okay, look at this. Now look at the picture in the book of return to life and look at the picture of Joseph. And do you notice any difference between the shape you're making and the shape Joseph's making there? You know, how could, how could you improve your technique? So it more closely resembles the intention of the shape that Joseph's, you know, so we do that. And I think that's valid and legitimate. And I, I if you, t- if you're out there and you teach like that, you know, high five, awesome. But just don't tell people that they should be in a partic- particular position because it's dangerous not to, or because it'll correct their pelvic tilt or because it's, you know, whatever. It's like, we can leave all that shit out and still, you know, teach alignment effectively. Well, and what I like to tell new, uh, new teachers is that at the end of the day, it's your class. It's your class. So as the teacher, you're the boss. So if that's how you want to teach the exercise, you have a right to do that. Uh, For me as a teacher, my teaching style is that I feel like I have two purposes in the studio. The first is to make sure that you are going to use the equipment safely. And by that, I mean things like please step on the the non-moving platform before you put your other foot on the moving bed, right? Like some people don't know that they need to do that. So that's, or- Put the safety or, strap on before you use the push-through bar with springs from above. Exactly. <laughs> so as a teacher, I, it is really important for me to teach people how to use the equipment because the equipment's funky. It's complicated. If you look at it, it just looks like a, just a bunch of pulleys and, handles and all kinds of things. So that's really important to me. And then the other role that I see myself in as a tour guide for movement options. So I have I have some exercises that I 
I would like to teach in class. And I'm going to break them down into meaningful parts. And you can choose how far along the way you want to come along with me. And that's pretty much it. And that's the style that I like to teach. But I agree with you. There are plenty of teachers who are really particular about how you do a certain exercise. And that is, they're trying to teach you, they're trying to teach you that thing. And I tell my students all the time, in my class, we're going to do it this way. So when you're doing a frog leg in my class, please bring your knees up to your chin if you can. And if it doesn't hurt you, because I think it's cool to see how far you can bring your knees in. But if you go to this other teacher's class and they want you to, you know, bring your knees in just to a certain point, that's what they want you to do. You can choose, you can choose to question them, but you know, that, that they're the teacher. They get to say that if they want to, <laughs> that's their class. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I'm a little bit more relaxed about things like that. And some people really like it and some people don't. I had a student who used to tease me all the time that I was teaching Hawaiian Pilates. And what he meant by that was that I was just so incredibly laid back with no rules. And I could never figure out whether or not he really enjoyed my class because he's like, oh, we're doing Hawaiian Pilates again. Just no rules. Everybody's like hanging loose and laying back. And I'm thinking, well, you're here anyway. Yeah, you're going to take my class. But um, yeah, some, it's just, uh, it's, it's a teaching preference. But going back to your, to your original question, which is, you know, if we're, if we're not focusing so much on anatomy and alignment, what are we focusing on? And I feel like we're focusing on the person as a person and not a body. So taking into consideration that maybe what they need today is not to be corrected all the time, but to just be able to forget about their, their, their day and just do some fun Pilates. And I think that's okay. And, and uh, maybe hear a funny just, story about what your kids did last night or something. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's just as beneficial. I feel like, is it, and I would love to know more about this from a, from an evidence-based standpoint, but is it more beneficial for a person to take a class that is highly corrective and and focusing on alignment and biomechanics versus a class where you just come in and just do a whole bunch of exercises and never once do I bring up a bone or a joint or a muscle. I think I know the answer. More beneficial in what respect? It Well, in health, in strength, in less pain, in rehab, in all of those things. I think what we'd find uh, from the research is that in terms of rehab, it makes no difference one way or the other. Um, and that in fact, so on a population level, so if we've got, you know, a thousand people with back pain, sent 500 of them to the, 500 of them to the like Hawaiian Pilates class where it's like, hey, no rules, you know, do whatever you want, <laughs> you know, um, and the other 500, we sent them to the like extreme biomechanics Pilates class where it's like, okay, activate your anterior fibers of the left TFL at 12%, you know, and everything's like super detailed. What we'd find is that, you know, eight weeks later, they would have all had exactly the same degree of improvement on average in both groups. There'll be no difference, but that within each group, there would some be some people who had more improvement, some people had less improvement. Uh, well, they would average out exactly the same in both groups. What we'd find is the people who were in who were in the extreme biomechanics group who got who got the most improvement would not be the people who had the worst biomechanics to start with, or the people who had the biggest improvement in biomechanics. In fact, it would be unrelated to whether they had any improvement in biomechanics or not. 
the people who got the biggest improvement would be the people who had self-perceived poor biomechanics at the start. So if people walk into the class going, oh, my pelvis is unstable and my low back is out of whack and my shoulders are tilted and whatever, and then you give them, quote, corrective exercises, they're more likely to improve in pain, even if those corrective exercises have absolutely zero effect on their actual biomechanics because of the placebo effect, basically, right? And and the people in the Hawaiian Pilates class, you know, some of them would do fantastic, some of them would do terrible, and some of them would do average. And if we look at the ones who did really well in the Hawaiian Pilates, like, oh, just, you know, do what you feel, and if you want to put your legs up or down, that's fine, and doesn't matter which muscles you're using, and, you know, just be free and move. Like, the ones who had the lowest self-perceived poor biomechanics, they would do the best in that class. And the ones who had the highest self-perceived poor biomechanics, they would do the worst in that class because they'd be thinking like, well, what do you mean just put my leg up? Which fucking muscle <laughs> should I use? You know, like, How can this be helping? So so um, what we see is on a population level, uh, you know, those approaches work just the same, right? So you can't say one approach is inherently better than the other. Uh, but on an individual level, um, you know, it does seem to work better probably just because of placebo and expectation, if you match the intervention to the client's expectation of what's going to help them. Yeah. So that's yeah. interesting. <laughs> uh, and, and you know, that, that opens up kind of, you know, for some people, an ethical Pandora's box of like, oh, well, if you give this treatment, you know, like say core activation, for example, when you know actually it doesn't matter whether they activate their core or not, you know, in terms of their back pain, but it's like they believe it matters. <laughs> so so that it probably will actually work better because, but just because of placebo, not because of any biomechanical thing. Um, so like, you know, what are the ethics of that? You know, giving something that you know is not, you know, mechanically efficacious, <laughs> but you, you suspect it will actually help them better. Uh, where I fall on that is like, yeah, I'll give them core activation. If you come to me and say, my back hurts, and I say, Why, you know, what do you think the problem is? And you say, oh, I know it's my core activation, right? I mean, if you just were like, oh, I'm not sure, maybe it's core activation, I wouldn't sell you core activation. But if you were like, no, I'm dead certain it's my core activation. I've been told by 19 physical therapists, and I read it on Google, and I stayed up. It's like it's a deeply rooted belief for you. Um, I'll be like, okay, great. Let's do some core activation. First, we would test your core activation. When I say test it, I mean like in quotes, test it, you know. It's like, how do you measure it? You know, so I would just do some test. I might get out the blood pressure cuff and or something, you know, test your core activation and go, hmm, yes, yeah, core activation could be a little bit better. You know, let's, so let's work on your core activation. I think that's really going to help you, right? Now, I would be super careful not to ever say poor core activation is causing you back pain, right? Or we are going to fix your core activation and that will mechanically solve your back pain. But I will just sort of like imply that core activation exercises are really going to help you because they probably are, right? Just not for the reason you think they are. And, uh, or, uh, yeah, so basically I, I don't have a problem with that. And I think of it as like Pilates jujitsu. So like using the client's mistaken beliefs, you know, for their own benefit. Um, and because I don't believe that clients come to us to be educated. I think they come to us to get out of back pain or to be able to touch their toes or to, you know, get back to playing with their grandkids again or whatever. And it's like, I don't care if I send them out with a few wrong-headed beliefs if they have achieved their goal and those beliefs aren't harmful to them. Well, you know? I also think that it's it's not beneficial to try to correct their beliefs <laughs> in a class. Like, it's just like what you said. You know, I, I may not necessarily agree that core activation is going to help with your back pain, but if that's what you believe and that's what you're asking for, 
I, I know how to do those things and I know lots of core exercises. If you want to do that, then we can do that. That's fine. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I think that I don't think it's an ethical situation when you're not, when you're not giving false information. If, if, if my student wants core activation exercises, then that's what I can give to them. I don't have to say anything else about it. I'm totally fine giving ab well, exercises. If you, if, you, if you say that you think it's really going to help their pain, it probably will. Right. <laughs> um, all right. So, you know, where does that leave us? Um, variation is normal. Anterior pelvic tilt probably is not really a thing. It's just how pelvises are shaped. Things like disc bulges and labral tears and meniscus tears in the knee and stuff are probably, you know, slightly related to pain but not directly and they're very prevalent in pain-free people and when we cut those bits of the body out, it doesn't really change pain. Uh, you know, even things like hypermobility, pregnancy, scoliosis, core activation, shoulder alignment, hip flexor tightness, really, uh, you know, either on a spectrum of human variation, which is normal, or just normal part of the aging process, or not a cause of pain, but a symptom of something else that causes pain, um, in the case of, say, hypermobility. Um, so labeling them as um, dysfunctional or pathological or, quote, deviations or, you know, abnormalities um, is factually incorrect and also harmful because we can cause fear and negative pain beliefs, increased healthcare utilisation, more disability, uh, and it is against current guidelines. Yeah. So don't do it. Well, where I stand on the biopsychosocial model is that I do believe that there is a biomechanical element to there, there could very well be a biomechanical element to people's pain. And I would never discount that. I don't think, I don't, I'm not completely into the psycho and social part of it. That's not, that's, that to me is a part of the equation, but I do think biomechanics could be a contributing factor, but it's not the only thing. And I think that's for me as a Pilates teacher, I really just want to normalize normal, which is that we all have aches and pains every now and then, that pain is not an indication of damage, and that the best thing to do is to just keep moving. I mean, all the things that you teach in in the certificate and diploma programs are things that I think are incredibly helpful just for Pilates teachers, is that you know you, you scan for red flags, and once you once you know that there aren't any red flags that you just work with a student to move the best that they can in that time that you have with them and, and just reassure them that, that they're going to be all right. Yeah. 100%. And I think that's Get it. Moving and, and reassure. But I, I just, I think sometimes when we, when we talk about the biopsychosocial, I think that, that there are some people who think, well, you're just not, you're just ignoring the biomechanical part of it. And I, 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 mm -hmm. I don't do that. I really think that there are definite 
biological factors to pain, but it's not always, the, like you said, it's not always the case. And I think that when it's not the case, we have so much opportunity to just keep clients moving and not feed into their fear and anxiety of moving in the first place. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, you're right there that um, the biopsychosocial model includes bio, right? It's not just the psychosocial model. Um, I think where a lot of people misunderstand it is that bio doesn't mean biomechanics. It means bio, biology, like you said. And so, yes, there's, I'd say there's always a biological component to pain, but that could be in systemic inflammation, right? That could be um, altered uh, transmission, you know, synaptic, synaptic transmission in the nervous system. That could be, you know, um, different, you know, proteins floating around in the system. Like there are so many biological things that contribute to pain that aren't biomechanics. Um, and yes, biomechanics can play a part. Like, you know, if you want to tear a hamstring, you know, run really fast, you know, <laughs> like it's very hard to tear a hamstring walking slowly. So, you know, so yes, you know, the biomechanics do matter, but it's like when you're running very fast, is there a particular running technique that's associated with more or fewer hamstring tears? No, there isn't, right? What's associated with fewer hamstring tears is having really fucking strong hamstrings. Well, the thing that I see a lot in the, in the studio related to a hamstring tear is I didn't, people come in saying, oh, I tore my hamstring and it hurts. And then when I ask them, they say I tore it 10 years ago. Mm. So that mm. to me is where pain has become chronic, where pain has become chronic. But in my, you know, in, in my prior training and in all of the education and information I consumed before I knew better, it was, oh, well, this person has an injury. I considered right. it an injury. And so what am I going to do to fix that? And I feel mm. like my approach probably continue to have them focus more on their injury rather than to just focus on on moving and not <laughs> worrying so much about right. about that old tear. Yeah. And we know So that, I think that's you know, that's the big problem. Right. The healing time on the muscle tear is three to six weeks. And even a severe, you know, muscle tear would be like th you know, three months. You know. That well that's like, one of the thing that I'm thinking about you were asking, you know, what can we do as Pilates teachers to to move on from this, one of the things that was really helpful for me was to really educate myself about prognosis of injuries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tissue healing times, that kind of thing. It's just if you know, if you know that somebody hurt their back 20 years ago and it still hurts, they don't get to be treated the same way as someone who hurt their back two days Yesterday, ago. Yeah. Yeah. You shouldn't yeah. you shouldn't treat them the same way because when, you know, somebody hurt their back, you know, two days ago and you ask, how did you hurt your back? And they're like, oh, well, I fell out of a tree and landed on my back or I was lifting a really heavy thing awkwardly and twisted around and then my kid jumped on me from the side and then my back felt sore. It's like, well, that sounds like it could be an injury and you might have a muscle tear or a sprain to a ligament or something. So it's probably a good idea to take it easy for a few days until the pain subsides then gradually return to activity. So, you know, treat it like an injury. Um, whereas if someone hurt their back 20 years ago and it still hurts, that whatever injury it was is well and truly healed, but the pain has become chronic, almost certainly due to some kind of um, sensitization of their system, but probably the central nervous system has become more sensitized to pain in that particular position. And so it's not an injury. If we MRI their back, we won't see any injury in there, but there is a physiology that's happening. The nervous system is firing more frequently um, and there's, you know, 
possibly inflammation or possibly not, but you know, there's there's physiology that's happening. Um, there's 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 facilitated um, you know n- nerve impulses with, and synaptic transmission within certain neurons, and and there will be beliefs and emotions and social context and conditioning and all kinds of things surrounding that. And so, laying off activity for a bit or you know protecting that area is not the solution to that person's pain situation. It's you know graded exposure. And it's addressing those non-exercise factors like general physical activity, beliefs, sleep, stress, you know, and a bunch of other things. Uh, so, yeah, so treating that person with chronic pain in, in the same way as, as, as if they have an injury is not, they almost certainly don't have an injury. They've almost certainly got a pain system malfunction. It's really helpful to understand that as a Pilates teacher. Mm. And... Mm. One of the things that is really important to me when people come into my studio is to help them build resilience. So Mm. if I know that they don't have an acute injury and that they have a pain pathway that's very, very deep from an injury that happened a long time ago and it's still bugging them, to be able to give them options on how to move and to also encourage them to see how much they can tolerate so that they feel that they can grow in their bravery of, of movement. Yeah. That's really important to be able to get people to not be so afraid of movement. And I think that I have found that focusing on the anatomy and the alignment for people who have a lot of injuries or chronic pain coming in, I don't know, at least in my experience, it, I don't know that it served them any better than, than me just saying, Let's just forget about the day and just have fun on this machine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we know, you know, on average, that's true. <laughs> so um, just, and in fact, current guidelines uh, essentially recommend, you know, if you read the ACSM guidelines or basically any other current high quality clinical practice guidelines on musculoskeletal pain, basically says, you know, after you've screened for red flags and acute injuries, reassure them that, they're going to get better, you know, it's like a cold for the back and get them moving, you know, try not to worry about it, stay active, you know, and if, if you have to modify your activity because it's just so painful, you can't do certain things, fine, just don't go as far into that move or add a bit of extra spring to support you or whatever, and then gradually get back to doing what your normal movement, you know, as quickly as, as you can, you know, within pain tolerance and don't worry about it, just, you know, crack a joke, talk about your weekend. Yeah. Well, and I don't know what it's like in Australia, Raf, but here in the United States, we do have a lot of Pilates studios and Pilates teachers who differentiate themselves as more rehabilitative or clinical Pilates. Uh, I think the, the problem that I found myself in when I was working in a studio was that I was expected to, to do it all, right? To to be able to have to teach fun group classes, but also to rehabilitate people at the same time. And I really had to put up a boundary for myself about what my niche was going to be. And for me, my niche is that I just want to, I want to teach a movement class, a fitness movement class. If you have injuries, you're welcome in my class. If you're pregnant, you're welcome in my class, but you will not get from me a lot of education and corrective exercise. We're, we're going to, we're going to do a 
a fun class together. And I hope that makes you feel better. And if it doesn't, then I know plenty of people, I know plenty of Pilates instructors who can help focus in on your wrist if that's what you wanted to work on or if you wanted to work on your knee. Um, I know how to... I know how to handle injuries, but I'm not going to do a lot of this clinical rehabilitative educational stuff with you. I I do think in America, and I'm not sure if that's true in Australia, I think in America there is a subset of people who come to Pilates with that expectation that they want, um, that they want that kind of special attention and that they want to be addressing very, very specifically certain muscles and joints and alignment protocol because like I said, that is the dominant culture that we have here. I still yeah. have no idea how we're going to change that or whether or not it's it's even worth changing. But I think that there are I think you I think you started a grassroots movement of Pilates instructors who wanted to look at Pilates in a different way. And so for me, this this conversation is really about redefining what Pilates is. And I feel like when we just focus on the anatomy and alignment and pathology, we are creating such a really narrow definition of what Pilates can be. And to me, Pilates is not precious. It is just another form of exercise. And what makes Pilates really cool is that you can learn a bunch of exercises and then you can translate them to a mat or to a ladder barrel or to a chair or to a reformer. I think that's really, really cool. And doing a swan on a ladder barrel versus doing a swan on a long box on a reformer. Why more fun? <laughs> Which one? The ladder barrel. Oh, yeah. yeah Obviously. Yeah, yeah. Obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that is really, really neat, right? Like how many forms of exercise give you the opportunity to do that, to understand that there's a, that there's this exercise that you can translate to different kinds of equipment. To me, that is what drew me to Pilates in the first place was that it was this, this movement laboratory, which is really what I want to create is I want to create a movement laboratory. I want people to be able to uh, adult their own bodies, in my class, I have specific, I have a few specific ideas of what we're going to do. But beyond that, like, this is your body, you get to choose the springs you want, you get to choose how high you want to lift your leg, you can choose whether or not you want to put your head down or up. It just, that's all good. You're here, you're moving. That's, that's really what I want. And I, I, I think for me, that's kind of where this conversation has value for me is the idea that we there's, there's space for a, a wider definition of Pilates. Because I think the other part of it too is that when you have this narrow idea that Pilates is this safe, intelligent exercise that is specifically for rehabilitating you know, your posture or your injuries, that puts us in a really, really it just, it, it opens us up to so much more competition. There's so many, we have so many physical therapists who can do that. There's so many other, there's so many other Pilates teachers as well that can do that. I feel like what else, how else do you define yourself so that you can broaden your product Mm. and you can market yourself as something more than just. It's really fun. It's like an adult jungle gym. It is. It is. 
I had a, I, when I was doing my training, I would bring my friends into the studio and they'd never been to a Pilates studio. And somebody said, oh, this is like a, like a sex torture chamber. Mm, it's like, like that too, but <laughs> uh, I don't, I, I, maybe. I never say that to the clients or let them bring it up. <laughs> uh, but it is, it's really, it's, it's, I, I think it's just fun. It's fun yeah. and it's really interesting. And I don't see anything wrong with it just being that, that Pilates doesn't have to be anything more than the fact that it's a fun exercise. It's fun and it's good method. for you. Yeah, it's fun and it's good for you. And if you don't like it, no big deal. Go do something yeah. else. But there's not many things in life you can say that about. They're fun and good for you at the same time. Like, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> and it does help with back pain. Even if you don't activate specific muscles. Yeah. So, um, wow. I think uh, I think we've set a world record. That's our longest episode ever. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, we know no Sam Harris or Joe Rogan. You know, for four hour plus, you know, episodes. But um, we're getting up over an hour and three quarters. So, if you're still listening, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Um, thanks so much, Natalie. This has been a really great conversation. Thanks, Raph. It's good to be back. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.